at the end of one of my stays in Burma, a long time ago now. Uh, I'd finished up a period of practice and met a, um, a nun, a Buddhist nun, a career nun, someone who had ordained for, for life, uh, originally from Vietnam, but who had done a lot of practice in Burma. And she was passing through Yangon, through Rangoon, the capital, uh, and staying at the city center for Upandita, where I was staying. And I'd just come out of silence, so we got to ch- chat a bit, and I kind of hit it off with her and got friendly with her. And one day she said, uh, oh, you have to come and meet my teacher. Uh, the next day she was going to be moving across town to a different center run by another one of the senior meditation masters who had trained under Mahasi Sayadaw. And one of the staff people was going to drive her over, and she said that I could come along and meet her teacher, which she strongly encouraged me to do. And I didn't think too much about this uh, at the time. It's pretty common, actually, kind of a tradition after a period, extended period of practice to, to kind of make the rounds and go around and visit different centers and talk to different teachers and hear what they have to say. So the next day, we went over to this other center outside of town, and uh, we went over to the Sayadaw's house. Sayadaw is the Burmese teacher just for kind of great teacher. I think it's a great uh, master. So we went over to the Sayadaw's house, and we took off our shoes and knocked on the door, and it was opened, and we went in. And the atmosphere inside that room, I have to say, was really like nothing I had ever experienced. It was one of those peak experiences of my life so far. Um, it was like diving into this pool of just utter stillness and tranquility. The, the Sayadaw was sitting there, and he had a, just a couple of his monks that were with him, uh, attending to him. He was quite elderly at the time. But it was like uh, the air was thick with peace. You know, there was just this real aura in the room. Um, it seemed like I could actually feel it on my skin. I actually got goosebumps just walking into the room. Uh, which was not anything I was expecting. You know, I didn't even know who this teacher was that we were going to see other than that it was you know, this, this friend of mine's teacher. And the, the Sayadaw that we were visiting there inside the room was not uh, particularly impressive physically. He was just this very thin, very old, wizened little monk, you know, little Burmese monk. And when we came in, he didn't smile. <laughs> He didn't frown. He didn't really do much of anything. He didn't have any identifiable expression at all. And yet he somehow exuded this aura just of complete softness, complete gentleness, complete receptivity. It was as if there was was nothing in him that was resisting experience in any way. Just he was almost invisible. (laughs) He was so light in his energy. Later on, I found out that this was Shui Umin Sayadaw the Golden Cave Sayadaw, who had been the senior disciple when he passed away of Mahasi Sayadaw, um, senior even to Sayadaw Upandita. And he was also uh, a Sayadaw Utejaniya's teacher, who was, you know, had a, a great influence on the way that we teach uh, this retreat. And uh, I didn't realize it, but it was rumored that Chwe Umin Sayadaw was a, an arahant, a fully enlightened being. And I've heard some, since then I've heard some interesting stories about him, including from Steve here, who had some interesting experiences with him. I don't know if he's shared those. Um, so we paid our respects to the Sayadaw, and we offered some food and other supplies that we'd brought as Donna to help support the center, to help support him. And then we had just a little bit of conversation. You know, with, with this kind of teacher, you don't go in and have a long kind of conversation and catch up. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not like that. Um, We just had a little bit of very uh, pointed conversation about practice and about dharma. And he didn't say much, but one of the things that he said to my nun friend really struck me and really has stayed with me all these years. At one point he asked her, you know, very quietly, are you satisfied with your practice? And she reflected for a few moments and then replied just simply no, that she wasn't satisfied with her practice yet. And Shui Umin Sayadaw, he he nodded just slightly, and he said, good. If you're satisfied, you won't continue. And the Buddha, too, gave the same kind of teaching to to his students in his day, that there are all sorts of benefits that can come from this practice, from uh, very mundane benefits to the most lofty. 
it is said over and over again in the suttas that the Buddha taught the path that's good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. Good all along the way. So we come to practice, or we continue in practice, with all sorts of aspirations. Um, and many of you have been bringing this up in the discussions that we've been having with you. you know, what your motivation, what your inspiration is for practice, or wondering what your motivation is, or your inspiration is. And there's really no one right inspiration or one right aspiration. It's up to each of us to explore that for ourselves. Or we might say that the right aspiration is the one that really comes from the heart. It's the true one. It's the honest one, the one that's sincere, the one that really resonates with each of us. On another trip that I made to Burma, I had, again, finished up a period of practice. You always get to do a little something after you finish your long retreat, just like coming out from here. And um, on that particular uh, visit, I had wanted at the end of my retreat to um, go and purchase a, a Buddha rupa, a statue, a Buddha body, to take back home from my little altar, um, which I still have it there. And uh, I was uh, near Mandalay, which has uh, one of the most... Uh, popular. <laughs> One of the most famous shrines in Burma is there, and there's a whole uh, temple precinct around it filled with uh, artisans that are devoted to temple arts. So there's people making you know, bells, and there's people making the ornaments that go on the monuments, and there's people uh, making monks' bowls, and you know, everything related to the, uh, the Dharma industry. <laughs> it's an interesting place. So I was going to go there and, and pick out a statue. There's people there also that do carving. And not really knowing much about what to look for, I asked some of my Burmese acquaintances if they had any advice on on choosing a statue. And the main thing that they all said was to be sure to get one that was carved from heartwood, that was carved from uh, the very center of the trunk of the tree, which uh, most of the carving they do over there is still from teak. It's you know one of the few places in the world that still has native stands of teak that haven't been completely deforested. <laughs> Um, so they told me that the, the heartwood, it's the, the densest part, the inner part of the trunk. It has the finest grain. It's the hardest. And it would be stronger, and it would take a better finish. It can be worked much more delicately, much more finely. And it's also resistant to changes like in temperature and humidity, so it's less likely to crack. It's more durable. So all of that kind of stuff. And they told me how to check if the statue was made out of heartwood, which is that you lift it up and you look at the base so you can see the actual rings, you know, see the, the, the imprint of the tree, the piece of wood that the statue was carved from. And if it's all like the, the dark uniform rings from the center of the tree, then you know it's heartwood. Once you get outside of the heartwood into the sapwood, then it gets lighter and softer. So this was my introduction to the, the concept of heartwood. Um, that if you want to make something out of wood that's really strong and that's really beautiful, you need the heartwood. And presumably this is something that would have been a matter of, of common knowledge to people in the time of the Buddha, again, working with a lot of wood with these old forests, just as it is in uh, Burma, mostly these days. And so the Buddha at one time gave a teaching called The Greater Discourse on the Simile of the Heartwood, which is what I want to talk a little bit about. So in this teaching, the Buddha compares spiritual life to a great tree standing in the forest. And he said that just as a great tree has many different components, many different layers, so too does the Dharma, so too does the path of spiritual life. Uh, sometimes we compare practice here to, uh, to peeling an onion. You know, it's got lots of layers and it involves a lot of tears. <laughs> <laughs> The Buddha's uh, you know, analogy is a little bit more poetic, you know, and probably a little bit more accurate, too. So when we first take up this practice, there can be um, a variety of simple benefits that we experience just quite naturally as a result of the practice. And the first benefits that we, we tend to encounter are often ones that um, provide us with personal gratification of one kind or another gratification of the senses, or gratification of the ego, things that aren't too far away from what we're used to looking for in our ordinary lives before we come to the practice. Uh, the Buddha called these, these first fruits of practice uh, gain, honor, and renown. Does anyone feel like they're, 
They've got gain, honor, and renown from their practice yet. <laughs> it's a little bit of an archaic term. Um, so at first it may not sound like something that we're particularly uh, experiencing as the fruit of our practice. But in, in the Buddhist time, you know, as today in many traditional Buddhist societies, uh, there were a lot of practical reasons for entering into spiritual life. Uh, a person who's ordained as a monk or uh, someplace as a nun in a Buddhist society, um, they're provided for by the community, to the, the monks entirely, the nuns to some extent. Um, and many people still ordain because uh, they're sick, they're hungry, they're old, they're alone. There's a very limited or non-existent uh, social uh, security net. And so the monasteries really act as you know, old age homes and hospitals and, and provide a lot of basic services that aren't otherwise available. It can be a way uh, to get an, edu- an education for a poor child or to move up the social ladder for someone that is ambitious and has limited means. So there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of gain, you know, just in a very practical sense to be gotten by entering into spiritual life in traditional societies. As, as lay people practicing in the West, the gain, the, the, the material benefits of our practice tend to be a little bit more esoteric. And they generally take the form just of pleasant sense experiences that are available to us through our practice. So there may be... Um, nice architecture, pretty buildings where we practice that are nice to be in with nice artwork, statuary, nicely decorated. Um, There may be nice music, chanting, not here, but some places. (laughs) There may be candles, incense, or, you know, kind of nice clothing that people wear and that we can buy and wear and, you know, kind of ritual objects that we can decorate our homes with. so even here, where there's not a whole lot of this going on, you know, this is a, a tradition that, that really is very simple. We don't have a lot of bells and whistles. But still, there's many just simple pleasures all around us. You know, the beauty of the natural world here, especially this time of the year. Uh, the land, the plants and animals around us. Um, this kind of simplicity of the buildings. They're not ostentatious, but they're just kind of nice, pleasing to the senses. All of the nice little... You know, I always love to look at the little shrines that are scattered around the grounds, the little nooks and crannies. You know, there's a real aesthetic to that. Uh, there's the pleasures of a good bowl of oatmeal <laughs> or the day when cookies show up on the back table. Um, you know, the, just sitting down with a nice cup of fresh organic tea, you know, watching the sunset or the chipmunks. You know, there, there, there are many just really simple pleasures available to us, which we start to notice as we get quiet and we get still. So we may find, and generally we do find, that we're able to really appreciate and enjoy these sense pleasures with a very special quality. You know, there's nothing like that bowl of oatmeal on retreat. It's just not quite the same at home. (laughs) So there's this keenness to the enjoyment of sense pleasures here. And that's really delightful. You know, it's a great gift to have the time and the quiet and the the attention from the mindfulness practice to, to stop and smell the roses, as it were or to stop and look at the chipmunks. We come into the world with that kind of wonder, uh, but then life happens, right? And we tend to forget, or it tends to get lost in the midst of everything else going on. We get more complicated, our lives get more complicated. Um, so it is wonderful to come here and remember you know, that sense of awe, that sense of natural gratitude and wonder and reverence. And to to be reminded that that way of relating to experience is readily available. We haven't lost it. It's actually still in there. We can access that. And we can take that that understanding back into our lives with us and make time to stop more often and smell the roses in the course of our daily lives. So this is a lovely benefit of the practice, this kind of gain. The rewards of uh, honor and renown... (laughs) the way we tend to experience them here in the West, um, usually refer more to to types of ego gratification that are available to us through the practice. Uh, Again, in traditional Buddhist cultures, there's often great respect given to people that are serious practitioners. Uh, The ones in robes, definitely, but even lay people who are known to be serious practitioners receive a certain amount of respect. I had a, uh, you know, it is a really interesting experience being in robes uh, in a traditional Buddhist society. I remember um, 
when I, when I first took robes in Burma, it was during the summertime, which this is the monsoon season there, which is actually a time when a lot of lay people um, make big offerings to the monasteries, in part to bolster their respect, you know, to make a big offering to the monastery is, you know, that, that kind of, you know, raises your, your social status, that brings you respect and honor uh, and renown. So during the monsoon season, it's a little bit like like wedding season, you know, like lay people in smaller or larger numbers like descend on the monastery and their best clothes and they bring all their friends and, you know, they offer, you know, elaborate meals, some of them, you know, incredibly luxurious and they talk, they stand around and watch you eat and they talk and they, you know, uh, just wander around the monastery and there may be music and all sorts of things. It's like having a wedding reception at the monastery. So, you know, be grateful for that person next to you that's just breathing a little bit loudly, (laughs) as we've mentioned before. And, um, you know, as a Westerner in robes, this was the first time that I'd actually been in robes practicing. Uh, I was getting, I found that I was getting a lot of attention during these events. You know, so these really elegant uh, Burmese ladies in their silks with their hair all, you know, coiled up on their heads and flowers and beautiful jewels would come over and, and kind of serve me choice morsels from the serving dishes. And, you know, sometimes they would even like sit down next to me and fan me while I ate to keep the bugs <laughs> off. <laughs> This was a very new experience. <laughs> and at first, I, w- I was definitely uncomfortable with it, right? This isn't something that, you know, usually as Westerners, modern Westerners, we just kind of fall into. Um, but this went on kind of week after week, month after month during the rainy season. And at a certain point, I realized, you know, I could, I could get used to this. <laughs> Not so bad. <laughs> so then I had to be mindful of that. <laughs> So again, for, for us, the honor and renown that's available here, a little more understated. But it's still present in different forms. You know, for, so for some of us, we do move in circles where doing something like this is a little bit sexy, right? It carries a certain elan. You know, we may come back from retreat and people may be like, oh, you went for a whole nine days, you were silent? You know, I can never do that. You know, we can get a little bit of that projection and adulation depending on the circles that we move in. But perhaps more importantly, uh, honor and renown can be generated internally. So we can also lay it on ourselves. So even if those around us are not too excited about what we're doing with our practice, which is also often you know, the case, obviously, um, we may still find that, that our own sense of being a yogi or being a meditator or being a spiritual person uh, helps us to feel good about ourselves, kind of bolsters, bolsters our self-esteem, gives us uh, an identity that we enjoy, helps us to feel like we have a sense of purpose, So to the extent that we're admired or admire ourselves uh, because of our practice, this can be a source of gratification in our spiritual life. So these kinds of benefits are nice, the ability to enjoy life more fully, uh, being able to feel good about ourselves for being on the path, but actually they're kind of uh, lightweight, lightweight benefits uh, because they involve enjoying the gratification of our, our senses and our egos in more or less the same ways as we're used to. So they're not really moving us towards a different way of relating in a deep sense. And yet the Buddha didn't say that these, these superficial rewards of spiritual life were bad or that we needed to avoid them or, or despise them in any way. In fact, he said that we're bound to encounter them in some form or another as we go along. And they have their place in practice as a support for going deeper. You know, there are times when mindfully watching the sunset or walking through the woods can help to balance the mind so that we can carry on. And there are times when a certain amount of uh, concern for our image or our reputation can also be a support. You know, can keep us you know, on the walking path for the full time rather than bailing after five minutes. Or you know, can keep us still in the hall when we're surrounded by our companions. But what the Buddha did say is that if we're satisfied with these these lightweight benefits of practice, uh, then that can be limiting because we don't continue to look for anything deeper. The Buddha compared gain, honor, and renown to the leaves and twigs of the great tree of the Dharma. So if we're we're satisfied to take away just these, these outermost aspects of the practice, 
we don't get to the heartwood. If we think about it, or if someone asked us, you know, we probably wouldn't say that this is what we're after in our practice. You know, we didn't come here to have a good cup of tea. You know, we didn't come here to convince a room full of people that we're really good yogis. You know, that's not why we do this, obviously. And yet, at times, we can lose our perspective. We can get a little lost in the leaves and twigs. But if we're not content with these first lightweight benefits, if we don't feel satisfied, then we continue in our practice, we carry on, and inevitably our practice will deepen and we'll begin to access the benefits of sila. That word sila, which we've been mentioning, if you're not familiar with it, translates literally as restraint. And it refers to paying attention to our way of behaving in the world, how we speak, how we act, and doing our best whenever possible to speak and act from a place of kindness, of caring, not wishing to cause harm. Upandita called sila the the conscious commitment to non-harming. It's one of the three main trainings of the Eightfold Path, including uh, right action, right speech, and right livelihood. Skillful. Saida also said that uh, the practice of sila is uh, the minimum spiritual practice that we can do as human beings to deserve our lives. This is the very least we can get away with in this life to deserve this precious human birth is at the very least to pay attention to how we're relating, how we're being in the world, and to take care not to cause harm, but to do good whenever possible. And if we practice mindfulness with sincerity, at some point we're bound to recognize for ourselves the importance of sila, even if it's not something that we're initially too concerned with. And that often happens in this way. So maybe you can relate to this. Uh, we start going to a meditation class or we come on a retreat. We get kind of basic mindfulness instructions, try to pay attention to what's happening in the body and the mind. And what we notice almost immediately, if not immediately, is that the mind is a mess. <laughs> it is, wanders all over the place. It's out of control. It's constantly falling into the grip of petty passions and squabbles. Uh, a huge amount of the time we're just not even really present and don't know what's going on. And for, for most of us, when we see this, it's a pretty unpleasant surprise. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how we can go through quite a long stretch of our lives and not see this. But once we look, it's really clear. And we may start to um, reflect, perhaps with no small amount of dismay, that this is actually how we're walking around in our lives, living our lives from this state of mind most of the time. And not only that, but we're, we're making decisions and we're acting and making choices out of that, that jumble of chaos in the mind. So just very, very naturally, very intuitively, we start to pay closer attention to what we're doing and why. It may be uh, in very small ways at first. We may not even realize that it's happening at first. But at some point or another, it's bound to dawn on us that the choices that we make matter and the quality of care and attention that we bring to them really matters. We're no longer content to just fumble through life, being pushed and pulled by our, by our passions and by our confusion. For myself, I remember um, very clearly when the importance of sila or the role of sila began to dawn on me. I had taken an eight-week introductory course and uh, was kind of sitting intermittently with a local mindfulness group and very, very occasionally on my own (laughs) on the cushion that I'd purchased and set up in a corner of my apartment that I hardly used for years. And uh, did a lot of browsing in the the Buddhism or Asian philosophy section of the bookstore (laughs) and kind of dating myself. This this was in the days when there were still actually stores filled with books. And I, was, I did find that I was stopping to smell the roses more often, uh, quite literally, because I was living in, North Cal- in Northern California and there were roses everywhere. And I was stopping more often to smell them, and it was really lovely. And learning little, little by little about my mind. Um, but then one day, out of the blue, I was having a conversation uh, with my boyfriend at the time, and I went to tell him a little white lie, you know, <laughs> just something I would do with some regularity. And uh, I found that I couldn't. It was, it was forming on my lips. I was about to say it. I intended to say it. Um, but something happened, and it wouldn't come out. 
Um, so I didn't, and we finished up the conversation. Um, but afterwards, I was kind of in shock. I was like, what just happened? <laughs> you know, what was that? Um, and it took a little while to connect it to, to my meditation practice, but that kind of thing kept happening. You know, I'd be at the office and people would be gossiping and I'd be like about to step in and say something nasty about somebody. Again, forming on my lips, lips every intention to say it. <laughs> and something would kind of catch me and it wouldn't come out. Um, so especially around speech, this, this started to happen. Um, and it's funny to think about now, but at the time I was actually quite dismayed by this. That <laughs> wasn't what I had signed up for. <laughs> You know, it's so ironic how we can, we can put so much effort into this practice, really hoping for deep transformation, but then when transformation actually starts to happen and it derails our lives, uh, we might not be so excited about it. You know, I didn't actually want the practice to come into that part of my life. I just wanted to sit and meditate and learn about the mind. You know, I didn't want it to actually affect my life, which I was quite happy with. <laughs> So it's, it's been a long path of, of, over the years of committing more and more fully to the practice of sila and coming to really appreciate its value. And the benefits of sila are uh, tremendous. So the, the leaves and the twigs of practice can give us a sort of superficial sense of self-worth and purpose. But the commitment to sila can really give us a meaningful, like a real deep sense of uh, self-respect, healthy sense of self-respect and purpose. Um, because it's not about me anymore. You know, it's not about, well, how do I look? What image do I have? What am I getting out of it? But it's about, you know, what can I contribute? How can I connect? How can I help? So the Buddha actually said that the practice of sila and those times when we are able to do good, we are able to make a difference, we are able to connect more sincerely, um, that all of that activity in the world is, is the appropriate foundation for a healthy sense of self-respect. That that's entirely appropriate for us to uh, feel good about ourselves, just in a very conventional sense, based on the, the effort that we make, the sincerity of our intention, to really live in the world in a conscious and minimally harming way, with as little harm as possible. I think it's Joseph that talks about um, being given the instruction at some point by one of his Asian teachers when he was at a really hard place in his practice and he'd gotten really uh, depressed. He was given the instruction to reflect on his sila, which was supposed to be a practice to, to brighten the mind, to uplift him, to reflect on this virtuous life that he was living, you know, as you know, living by the precepts and in, in, in retreat. Um, and he didn't quite, you know, that's not something that immediately resonates with us as, as Westerners for most of us. But the Buddha said, yes, this is appropriate. You know, not, not indulging in a sense of self-righteousness or self-aggrandizement, but as we become more discerning and we develop more wisdom about what is truly wholesome and what it does really cause harm, to really take delight in our commitment to uh, fall on the side of non-harming, to really be part of that, that troop, to be the person that does try hard to do their best. And of course, the practice of sila can significantly impact our relationships. You know, it can, can really um, smooth all sorts of tension that there may be lingering from past resentments, past injuries. It can help uh, the, the relationships that we have that are already healthy and rewarding. It can make them even more uh, rewarding, even deeper. And I know that are, there are many of us here that are very committed to the practice of sila whether we think of it in those terms or not, many of us are grappling with big and important questions about how to be in the world skillfully, about how to, to live harmlessly with as little harmful impact as possible, how to respond with wisdom and compassion to, to so much of the injustice, the inequality, the conflict, the confusion that uh, seems so prevalent in the world, especially for many of us just now, you know, in the context of our lifetimes. This seems like a very difficult time. So the commitment to seal is what can help us to navigate all of that terrain, all of that messiness of life and relationship and community. Taking those wise intentions that Steve spoke about, the intentions of kindness, of compassion, of letting go, and letting those be our compass, you know, more and more, as much as possible. 
And it turns out that that's both personally satisfying and also supports us in offering you know, to, the, to the best extent that we can the gifts that we have to offer and what we can do to help. For some of us, you know, this, this is a key motivation for our practice. I've heard some of you express this. Whether it's to, to heal personal relationships or to be uh, more effective in our work in the world for the good. Um, and that's a beautiful aspiration. And, and one that is sorely needed in the world, as we all know. But interestingly, in his metaphor of the great tree of the Dharma, the Buddha compares the practice of sila to the outer, outer bark, the outer bark of the great tree. So as great as the benefits of the practice of sila can be, uh, they're actually only still close to the tip of the iceberg of what's possible, uh, which is it's pretty impressive. You know, that this, this is like one of the, the lesser things we can expect as fruit of the practice. And it is also possible that it can happen, that we can get a little lost in the outer bark, that we can get a bit preoccupied with sila, and we can uh, kind of fall into this attitude towards practice that it's a self-improvement project, that we're trying to become better people. Um, so even if we're putting a lot of energy and attention into living more skillfully, we're still bound to suffer if we don't also continue to do the deeper work, the work on what is underneath and behind our action in the world. So if we're not content with the practice of sila, and we continue to explore the mental states that are motivating our activity in the world, then our practice will inevitably deepen and we'll have a chance to enjoy the benefits of samadhi. Samadhi is an interesting word. Now, we've spoken about this some already. Um, it's often translated as concentration, but it also um, has the, the meaning of uh, tranquility or calm. Uh, there's a direct link between the two. So a concentrated mind is still and tranquil, and a calm ma- mind tends to be easily concentrated and focused. So one meaning implies the other. They very much are connected. And what's meant by samadhi here is the the calming of the hindrances, the stilling of those difficult states of mind that lead to all of our agitation and all of our suffering, really. The craving, the aversion, the energetic imbalances, the obsessions. So when all of that quiets down, then the mind just naturally becomes calm and collected. And some of you are starting to notice this for shorter or longer periods, that there are times now when things seem to quiet down and there's just this natural ease in the present moment, natural restfulness. Once we do see what a mess our minds are, uh, the desire for tranquility, the desire for calm also arises very naturally. That's something that tends to arise again right in that early part of our practice as soon as we see what's actually going on in the mind. You know, we all just want to enjoy a little mental peace and quiet. <laughs> That's why a lot of us are here, right? That's what we signed up for, a lot of us, is the, the tranquility. And that's a very natural and universal impulse. You know, it, it is so often what motivates us to continue with practice, motivates us to come on a retreat. Um, it's what we call samadhi bhavana, the development of tranquility. So we carry on with our meditation, we come on retreats, and lo and behold, we start to experience periods of rest in the midst of all those wanderings of the mind. It may just be a moment here and there, may eventually be longer periods, prolonged periods of time, periods of peace and calm when the body is comfortable and relaxed, the mind is comfortable and relaxed, and we feel like we can just rest in the flow of what's happening in the present moment. We may even start to have some quite unusual experiences that come from concentration. We might see uh, colored lights or even visions. There might be a sense of the body floating, kind of magic carpet, or rocking, like we're in a rocking chair. Um, There can be altered perceptions of the body. The body just doesn't feel quite normal. Maybe it feels really light. Maybe it feels really heavy. Maybe it seems like the shape has changed or parts of it have disappeared. Um, there may be altered perceptions of the world around us. It seems like things kind of don't look right or kind of don't feel right. Like the world has changed. So many, many different kind of unusual experiences can happen when tranquility arises. 
Um, they may even be experienced, uh, ironically, as unpleasant at times, <laughs> if they're, they're kind of out of the realm of what we're familiar or comfortable with. But however we experience concentration, whether it's very just quiet and peaceful or whether there are some more dramatic things going on, uh, it feels very different from our ordinary experience. When, when samadhi is uh, present, then we know that we're really meditating. <laughs> it gives us that nice feeling that something's really happening. And this is a wonderful benefit of the practice. Uh, samadhi is like a spa treatment for the mind. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it helps us to relax, it releases stress, it's said to have lots of um, beneficial effects on the physical body and to be very cleansing, to, cleansing to the blood, is what they say in Burma. Um, really helps to, to purify the whole system. Uh, there's a great sense of delight that comes with samadhi, of ease and peace, and that in and of itself, just to have some time like that is a great benefit. And it's also supportive of insight, of deepening the practice. So when we are calm and the hindrances have quieted down, that really helps us to settle into the present moment and to be more aware, more continuously aware. The Buddha praised samadhi repeatedly, (laughs) repeatedly and enthusiastically over and over again in the teachings. Couldn't say enough good things about samadhi. And yet, he said that samadhi is like the inner bark of spiritual life inner bark of the great tree. So we haven't even made it past the inner bark. (laughs) We haven't even made it past the bark and the simile yet. But we'll get there by the end of the hour, I promise. (laughs) Um, So why just bark? You know, it sounds so great. For for a lot of us, this is what we really want out of the practice. Um, But samadhi has one big drawback, which you have probably noticed if you've experienced it even for a few moments. And that is that it ends. (laughs) It doesn't last. So it only gives us temporary relief. Um, Sairu Pandita called uh, the experience of uh, samadhi fake nibbana, fake nirvana, (laughs) because it can masquerade as nirvana. You know, we get that good sitting where everything's just smooth sailing and it's quiet and it's peaceful and it's really easy to think, ah, this is it. (laughs) You know, this is what it's about. You know, maybe it doesn't last now, but this must be what it's about. Eventually I'm going to feel like this all the time and then I'll be enlightened and it'll be, you know, I'll be set for life, right? It's, it's fall, easy to fall into that. It's very natural. And yet, you know, if we have these kinds of experiences over and over again, you know, some of us it takes longer to get this than others, but eventually we realize they always pass. You know, they always come to an end. So samadhi is uh, like the inner bark. It's getting closer to the center, but it's not there yet. So if, if we're not content with our experiences of samadhi, and we continue with our practice, that at some point we'll realize that the freedom from suffering that the Buddha talked about doesn't actually mean having a continuous stream of pleasant experiences. You know, it doesn't mean that in an ordinary sense, in the way that we've been living life so far, seeking uh, sense pleasures, emotional pleasures, intellectual pleasures. And it doesn't mean that in spiritual life either. It doesn't mean gaining a steady stream of spiritual pleasant experiences either. And when we, when we get that, and again, this can take a long time to really get this, to really absorb this, um, it's a major turning point on the path. And when we really get that, then we do stop chasing after gratification from the practice. We stop looking for just that next good sitting, that next next nice sitting, Uh, which opens us up to be able to really apply ourselves continuously without distraction to being aware of what's actually happening so that we can see more and more the deeper level of what's going on. And at this point, we can start to experience insight, Vipassana insight. Insight as in the Insight Meditation Society, that insight. That word vipassana means seeing things differently, seeing things from a different perspective than we usually do, which is seeing things as they really are. And by things, we mean moment-to-moment experience, reality, because that actually is reality, (laughs) is what's happening right now. Everything else is fantasy. So seeing absolute reality, what we call absolute reality, what's going on beneath all of the concepts, beneath all of the ideas and all of the stories, all of the, all of the perceptions that Marx spoke about, 
just seeing the bare experience of what is actually happening in this present moment. When we start to see the nature of that, then we gain what the, the Buddha called knowledge and vision of the way things are. So insight in this sense refers specifically to seeing the three universal characteristics of experience, or sometimes we just say the three characteristics, which we've been talking about throughout the retreat, seeing anicca, dukkha, and anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and impersonality. So in, in mindfulness practice, what we see is how things are. And there's different types of things that we see. So at times we see what we call uh, the specific qualities of experience. So this is, um, you know, we're sitting and we're feeling the body and we feel heat or we feel pressure or we feel heaviness, we feel tension, we feel vibration, all of those specific qualities of the moment's experience, which are constantly changing. So sometimes we may feel heat, sometimes we may feel cold. Sometimes we may feel light, sometimes we may feel heavy. And the same thing in the mind. We notice different things going on in the mind. Sometimes we're planning, sometimes we're remembering. Sometimes there's no thinking. Sometimes there's sadness, sometimes there's happiness. The the specific quality of the mind is constantly changing. So we call it the specific reality, the specific quality of the moment, the specific characteristic of the moment, because it's specific to that particular moment. Every moment has its specific quality in the body and the mind. But through insight, we come to see the universal characteristics, which are called universal because they're universal. (laughs) They're there in every moment. So whether we're feeling a moment of heat or a moment of cold, a moment of happiness or a moment of sadness, uh, it's changing. You know, whatever we're specifically experiencing, the next moment it's gone, or it's changed, or it's changed into another moment that's that's the same quality. So no matter what specific experience we're having, it's always true that it's changing. There's no moment that we've experienced that wasn't changing. It's a universal characteristic of experience. And the same thing with, uh, with dukkha, with unsatisfactoriness. There is no moment of pleasure that we've ever had that has completely and permanently satisfied us. You know, it doesn't mean it's not good in the moment. It just means that it doesn't scratch that itch forever. <laughs> you know, eventually, we're going to want another pleasant moment. So there's, you know, we can think of the, the peak experiences in our lives, you know, those moments when everything just fell into place. We were young, we were healthy, we were strong, we were in love, we were doing something we loved. Right? We've all had those moments, hopefully. But where are they now? Do they satisfy us? Do we not want <laughs> any more pleasant moments now? No. They, they ended, just like all experiences end, and we are left unsatisfied by them. Sense experiences that change are unable to satisfy us permanently. So that, and that's true of every sense experience in every moment. It's a universal characteristic. And the same thing with, with the no-self, the, the non-self, the impersonality characteristic. It's all out of our control. You know, we, we, see, we see that over and over again here. We have influence, yes, but can we control exactly the way that our life unfolds? Can we control the experience that's arising in any given moment completely in all its aspects? Can we keep it from disappearing? No. There's not a a, a controller. There's not a decider here in that sense. So these are the universal characteristics of experience that we come to see through knowing, through insight. Insight develops gradually, beginning just with brief glimpses. You know, at first we usually just get a little peekaboo into one of these characteristics, maybe just for a moment, just for a single moment, eventually leading to to longer and longer periods when we're more just resting in this understanding, seeing things going, seeing things changing, seeing how out of control it is. So like the rings of the tree, you know, the rings of the onion, (laughs) we see deeper and deeper layers of the, the universal truths, the deeper truths of life. And there are a lot of layers on this part of the path, on this section of the path. Uh, some layers are blissful. You know, there may be times when we see everything changing, seeing that it's impersonal, and it's a huge relief. You know, we can have this feeling like, oh, thank goodness. It's not all about me. <laughs> As Mark says, it's just nature doing itself, and that can feel just incredibly freeing and light. At other times, there may be, be rings on the tree that are, that are quite distressing. You know, we may feel like our whole 
understanding of ourselves, our whole understanding of the world, you know, what exactly is going on here is just not what we thought it was. And it can be incredibly disconcerting, incredibly uh, uh, frightening at times even. And then there may be layers also, rings of the tree, where we're just equanimous. You know, we see how things are changing. We see, you know, how out of control it all is. And there's just a, a really deep stability and steadiness in the face of that, and unperturbability. So we have to go through many, many layers of deepening insight. I remember first um, seeing uh, the first time that I saw a thought clearly. <laughs> I remember very clearly the first time that I saw a thought clearly. It was on um, the first three-month retreat that I sat here. I was sitting kind of right up here in the front. <laughs> of course, the hall looked completely different then, but it's the same place. <laughs> we tend to remember like our, our insight locations around the center when we come here a lot. Um, but I was just sitting, you know, just as always, you know, and feeling the body, noticing the mind, um, just feeling it kind of, feeling particularly not feeling particularly insightful, feeling pretty normal the way that I mostly did at that stage of my practice. But at one point, a thought arose. I saw it arise. It was a short thought. I saw it play out, and then I saw it end. Big deal, right? (laughs) But I actually saw it. I actually got it. Not thinking about it, the, the awareness right in sync with what was happening moment by moment, continuous, you know, just for a few seconds. And it was like being hit with a ton of bricks, you know, it was like being punched in the chest, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't do that. <laughs> you know, I didn't make that happen. That wasn't me. Um, you know, it really bowled me over. So I went in uh, to my teacher and, you know, I was kind of like all, you know, excited about this insight and reported it to my teacher. And the teacher said, okay, good, you know, keep going. Uh, whereas Upandita probably would have said, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> But I, but I was really, I was really uh, under the impression, you know, coming out of that insight, okay, now I've got it. <laughs> that's, that's this impermanence, that's this impersonality that they keep talking about it. I've seen it. Now I've got it. <laughs> Until a while later, I had another experience with, it, with a different object like this, you know, seeing it arise, seeing it go, seeing it end. Uh, and this experience was, was clearer. It was more convincing. The awareness was a little more penetrating, more continuous. And I got it uh, more deeply. And I thought, okay, now. <laughs> you know, I didn't quite have it before, but now I've got it. And it took quite a few experiences of, you know, just moments of insight like this, just really brief openings before I started to realize that there's a lot to get. <laughs> there's a lot of rings. So insight unfolds gradually, one step at a time. And until we're completely free from suffering, <laughs> we can't really say that we've got it. So we watch our experiences constantly changing. We watch how our pleasant experiences disappear, leaving us without any lasting sense of satisfaction, Uh, how experiences arise in the mind and the body without invitation and mostly beyond our control. And by seeing this over and over again, we come to know more and more deeply the truth of the universal characteristics of reality, not on an intellectual level, but intuitively, through directly observing them. And as, we, as our insight deepens, we automatically move through life more and more in tune with the truth of how things are. You know, it's like there's this little verse on the chant sheet at the end there that says to, to live in accord with truth is the greatest peace, it's the greatest happiness. So we start to develop increasing equanimity about life's ups and downs. We stop expecting experience to play out in ways that just aren't consistent with what we know to be true. We stop expecting things to last or to give lasting gratification. And we stop taking everything so incredibly personally. (laughs) We can start to let go more that it all has to do with me. And all of this leads to uh, a deeper, and subtler and more pervasive sense of ease and peace in our lives than the relatively short episodes of peace and ease that come from samadhi, that come from tranquility. So insight and the wisdom that comes from insight provides us with a much more reliable refuge from suffering than samadhi or sila. And yet, 
the Buddha said that these benefits that come from insight are like the sapwood of the great tree. So there's something still to be gained even beyond this great benefit of the practice. Because for a long time, the the quantity and quality of our insight and equanimity um, fluctuates. It's not stable. And those of you that have you know, been on this path for some time can testify to this. It kind of, kind of goes up and down according to conditions. It's still vulnerable to conditions. So at times our wisdom, our equanimity may be quite strong, quite stable, quite reliable. Uh, we might be able to draw on the strength of our practice for, for balance and for peace. Um, but then inevitably there will be other times when our insight wanes. You know, we kind of, we, we kind of remember that it's there, but it's, it's out of view, it's not accessible. And we fall into suffering. We can't rely on it so much. With time and practice, our insight will become more stable. It will mature. Well, we could say the practice matures. And yet we still may encounter suffering that uh, it doesn't protect us from. So if we're not content with the benefits of fluctuating insight, then we'll carry on. We'll continue with our practice. We'll look for something more reliable. We'll get the message of the three characteristics more and more clearly, more and more powerfully on subtler and subtler levels until finally we get it so clearly, so powerfully, that it's impossible to ever forget. It's impossible to ever lose sight of that wisdom. And that's what the Buddha called the heartwood of the great tree, the essence of the path. So we might experience uh, all of these uh, different layers of the, the tree, of the path, um, you know, in, in, in many different ways. It's said that there's a difference um, in, in these kinds of teachings that come out of the traditional teachings between the, the teaching order and the practice order. This is a distinction that's made even way back in some of the early commentaries. Uh, things were transmitted in this very uh, linear, very literal way. Uh, from the time that these teachings were oral tradition, but it, seemed, it appears that even very on, early on, there was a ten- tendency for people to kind of glom onto these teachings and say, "Okay, well, where am I now? Which ring am I on? You know, am I on sila practice? Am I still in the leaves and the twigs? Have I made it to the sapwood yet?" And to kind of get hung up about how their path was playing out. So that's not the intention of this teaching to give us a very literal map for how our practice might unfold, but more just to to lay a general framework for the terrain that's involved and to give us some sense of, of, you know, where, uh, what what experiences we we might encounter, what areas that we might have to to work within as we go along. So, for example, all of these aspects of the spiritual life may come up uh, just within a single meditation period here on retreat. So, say we come into the hall here and it's a beautiful day outside as we've been having and everything's kind of quiet and peaceful here in the hall the lights streaming in through the windows maybe there's bird song you know all of our fellow yogis are moving very quietly and mindfully around us it's very inspiring and we look up and see you know the buddha rupa here so serene with the beautiful orchids around him and it's all very lovely you know fills us with a sense of, of joy and gratitude to be here that's the, the leaves and the branches. And that's our gain, the pleasures, just the being here, being in this environment. So then we sit and you know, maybe we start trying to connect with the present moment in whatever way we do, feeling the body, feeling the breath, noticing sounds, noticing thoughts. And we find ourselves thinking about some challenging situation in our life or some uh, project that we have going and the various courses of action open to us. And because of the stillness and the quiet and our mindfulness, uh, we might get a little bit more clarity. We might feel a little bit more compassion around the situation and find ourselves connecting deeply in a powerful way with the resolve to do the right thing or to find a good uh, course through the situation, to find a path that will involve the minimum of harm and the maximum of good. So that's the outer bark of the practice, the arising of sila, the arising of that compassionate uh, impulse. Then maybe we notice that the mind has wandered, you know, they've been telling us not to get involved in these thoughts. Uh, We remember what we're doing here. 
we can recommit to awareness, start again to notice what's happening in the present moment. And after a while, we might find that the mind actually is settling down. We start to feel calm, relaxed, sense of contentment, feels like not too much is going on. There's not a lot in the thinking mind that's really distracting us. And it's just lovely to sit. It's really nice to be here in the present moment. We may wonder what the big deal was about those early days of the retreat when it seemed like it was so hard. So that's the inner bark. That's the, the, the benefit of samadhi, that calming of the hindrances, the quieting of the difficult emotions. Then at some point we realize that, oh, we're not actually really paying attention anymore, but we're just kind of hanging out and enjoying <laughs> the peace and the tranquility. Um, so again, we recommit to awareness. We perk up our attention a little bit. We remember to notice and feel all of the uh, more subtle experiences that we're having, the passing experiences, and we start to feel just how fleeting they are, that they don't last even for a moment, that, they, that they're coming and going really beyond our control without our interference at all, and our wisdom and equanimity deepen. So this is the sapwood of insight, seeing the deeper nature of experience. And then maybe as we're sitting quietly, mindfully aware, uh, a moment comes and our mind breaks through to an even, even deeper understanding, an even, even deeper insight, the deepest understanding of the nature of everything that's going on here. And then we touch, maybe just for a moment, the heartwood of the practice. And our relationship to ourselves and our relationship to life is never the same again. It has to happen sometime. <laughs> So why not now? So you may be saying to yourself, well, you know, I'm not really after enlightenment. <laughs> That's not why I came here. Uh, I'm not even sure I really buy it. You know, it sounds a bit like pie in the sky. And even if it's possible, I'm sure it's not possible for me. You know, I'm, I'm just little old me. I'm sure that that's not available to me in this lifetime. And the truth is that most of us don't come to this practice aspiring to full enlightenment, not at the beginning anyway. You know, some of us are attracted just by, you know, the beauty of being in retreat and the chance to be close to nature or be away from the pressures of our daily life. And that is perfectly okay. You know, if it gets us in the door and gets us on the path, you know, for a lot of us it is that path. Some of us come looking to develop our sila, looking for ways to, to live more mindfully, to live more skillfully, um, to be more effective in the world. And that's a beautiful aspiration. You know, nothing wrong with that. Many of us do come looking for samadhi. You know, we want to know some real peace, some real tranquility. We want a break from the stress, from the anxiety. And that's also entirely healthy and wholesome. It's also a wonderful aspiration. And some of us do come looking for insight with a hunger to really understand more deeply you know, what's going on here. Part of that, that ancient stream that I mentioned you know, throughout the history of humanity, people that really are seeking deeper wisdom. So it's up to each of us to identify our own aspiration and our own inspiration. But also it's helpful to keep in mind that aspiration tends to be a moving target. And again, those of you that have been at this for a long time may be able to testify to this, that, that what initially brings us to the practice usually isn't what keeps us doing the practice. That as our understanding grows, then our aspiration, our, our sense of what's possible also grows. You know, Mark mentioned last night this, this quote from Sharon Salzberg, why not aspire to full enlightenment for the benefit of all beings? You know, what have we got to lose? <laughs> but it is important to be authentic and to be true to ourselves and to, to draw on whatever our heartfelt sense of inspiration and aspiration is at this point in the practice. It's all good. It's good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, it's good in the end. So let's sit for a few minutes. Suppose a person needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, came to a great tree standing possessed of heartwood. 
and cutting out only its heartwood would take it away knowing it was heartwood. Then someone with good sight upon seeing that person might say, whatever it was this good person had to make with heartwood, their purpose will be served. half an hour for walking and then please join us for the last sit. It may be that at this point in the retreat there is a little more energy to to extend the day a little bit so uh, you can set aside assumptions you have about how much sleep you need. This is really the sweet spot in the retreat that we want to take full advantage of. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.